All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Now, Father, we're thankful that we have an opportunity to study your word, to take time to reflect upon what you have said to us, to work our way diligently through the scriptures verse by verse, coming to understand all that you have taught us and that God the Holy Spirit uses this to expand our understanding of who you are and our understanding of who we are, our understanding of grace and our understanding of your plan and purposes for human history. That this gives us a sense of meaning, meaning related to our own lives, that we are living today in light of eternity. And this is true for uh, every believer in every dispensation, though we have uh, certain distinctions in each dispensation, and though there are uh, different uh, rewards, different uh, areas of accountability, Nevertheless, those general principles of accountability and preparation for the future kingdom are true for every dispensation. Now, Father, as we study in this third of three parables, we pray you would help us to understand its significance and importance, uh, what Jesus is teaching his disciples at that point, and its implication for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 25, Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. And the focal point of this third of three parables is to be faithful, to be faithful. It's the parable of the talents. Now, a couple of things just generally is that this is one of those parables that is frequently misused and abused and is mis- misinterpreted uh, many, many ways. It's, uh, we have to understand to whom Jesus is speaking when he tells this parable. We have to understand the context of this parable, that Jesus is not talking to church-age believers. He's not talking to church-age believers through the disciples. He's not talking to uh, Christians at all. He's not talking about spiritual gifts. He's not talking about many of these things that people go to to try to relate this to, to us as believers today. The emphasis, as we'll see, is a counterpart to the parable of the ten virgins, the parable that we, that immediately precedes it. They are emphasizing two different uh, qualities that are important for those who are waiting, watching, anticipating the kingdom at the end of the tribulation period. 
So it's a parable. Now, a parable is a story that is told. And as this story is told, it is then related to some spiritual truths. One of the things that we have to remember is that parables are not teaching doctrine. You don't want to ever build your theology or your doctrine on parables. Parables are illustrations of doctrine that is being taught. And so we have to look at the epistles. We have to look at Jesus' specific teaching and other passages in the Gospels. We have to look at Old Testament context in order to get to the doctrine that's there. But these are just parables or illustrations. Often that is that is misunderstood. So I have four things that I want to uh, review us on when it comes to interpreting parables. First of all, Parables are not used to interpret other parables unless the context links them together. For example, in Matthew 13, you have the parables related to previously unrevealed information about the kingdom, the parable of the soils, the parable of the uh, tares that are sown among the uh, uh, among the wheat, the parable of the uh, hidden treasure, the parable of the pearl of great price, the parable of the of the mustard seed, the parable of the dragnet. These are all interconnected, and they're interconnected in that original context. We also see it here in this context that the there's a parable that's given back in chapter 24, verses 32 to 35, related to the parable of the fig tree. And that is emphasizes the uh, that you that the tribulation generation could know that the arrival of the king and the kingdom was near, though there is a warning that they can't precisely determine that, as I have taught in the past. Now, there are some who debate that because they think that uh, you that, that especially believers will be counting down the days. However, as I've studied through the judgments in the tribulation, especially the sixth seal judgment and a couple of the trumpet judgments where the sun is darkened by by one-third, the moon doesn't give a third of its light, there's a such disruption that occurs in the tribulation period. I think people will lose track of time, be very difficult for people. We're not, I think electronics will be completely destroyed. I don't th- you're not going to have your cell phone, your iPhone. None of you will have anything will be with the Lord. But people then won't have those things. They won't have any of the things that we have today that help us tell, uh, tell time. Uh, say, well, wait a minute, I ha- have a watch. Uh, yes, but that watch usually runs on a battery, and that battery may not last. And where are you going to get a replacement? I think all of the uh, distribution networks that we think of. You're not going to be able to walk down to your HEB because after that asteroid shower, the sixth judgment, it's pretty much going to wipe out all distribution networks and other things. So I don't think people are going to be able to uh, to tell time. So that's the warning. They'll be generally tr- aware that seven years has gone by, it ought to be pretty close, but they're not going to be able to count down to the day or the, or the hour, which is what verse 30, what verse 36 says. And then there is a, another, uh, parable that's told, verses 43 to 44. It's not identified as a parable, but 
it's uh, an illustration that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched. That's the focal point. It, it, it builds on the parable of the fig tree, he, to watch, to watch. And you know it's near, so you are to be watchful, just like the homeowner would be watchful if he knew somebody was going to break in at night. So there's a, an awareness and a prep to be prepared. And then you get into these three parables, the faithful servant, faithful and wicked servant, the wise and wise and the foolish virgins, the sensible and the stupid virgins, if you want to have a little alliteration, and then uh, the parable of the talents. And these are all interconnected, as I pointed out last time, by the... Uh, by the uh, conjunctions that are used at the beginning of each one of these. Uh, we see in verse 14, 4, and if you're using a New King James, it uh, puts in the kingdom of heaven, which makes it accurate because it is continuing the previous, the thought of the previous parable, which is a kingdom of heaven parable, as we'll see. It says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a man, but that 4 takes us back to verse 13. Verse 1, then the kingdom of heaven, that then take, connects it back to verses 45 to 51. Language, as we, as we saw last time and this time, connects all of these together, and they all develop out of the, uh, the story of the master and the, the, and the thief, and also the parable of the, of the fig tree. So these are connected contextually. So they can be used to interpret each other. But the point here is that you and I have both heard people go over to Luke 19.12 and following to the parable of the minas and use the parable of the minas to interpret the parable of the talents. But the parable of the minas is given to the disciples as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. That would have been on the previous Sunday morning probably. And this is two or three or maybe even four days later when Jesus is is answering a question the disciples have. The context is completely different. There are two different parables. There may be similarities in the story, but that's typical in a lot of the stories that are told to illustrate different kinds of different kinds of things. So you don't use Luke 19, another gospel, another day, another story to interpret this one. It's very important. Second, is that the kingdom parables are all about Israel and the kingdom. You may think after listening to me for the last several months on this that that is uh, painfully obvious, but it is not obvious to many people. They try to make these connect to the church. I think this is a major flaw in uh, a lot of uh, a lot of free grace people are taking these views and it shows a lack of consistent application of critical dispensational hermeneutics, specifically the distinction between Israel and the church. It also betrays a confusion about the nature of the kingdom for some of them, not all of them, but for some of them. So the kingdom parables are all about uh, Jesus' instructions about the messianic kingdom, which relates to a literal 1,000-year rule of Jesus Christ on the earth. It's a geopolitical kingdom that will be centered in Jerusalem in the future. The kingdom was offered by Jesus and his disciples at the first coming, 
It was rejected, Matthew chapter 12, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit by the Pharisees. It was postponed as a result of that, and so you have the mysteries, that is, previously unrevealed doctrine about the parables in Matthew chapter 13. And so all of these kingdom parables relate to teaching certain facets, usually previously unrevealed truth about the nature of the kingdom. Third, not every element within a parable has significant meaning for the interpretation. For example, last time we talked about the parable of the ten virgins, five who were wise or sensible, and they were prepared. They were, were prepared because they were prepared because they had extra oil. And I talked about the fact that uh, many times you and I have heard people say the oil represents the Holy Spirit, but not in the par- not in this parable. And even afterwards, I had somebody somebody say, "Well, what does the oil represent?" Missed the point. Not everything represents something. The oil doesn't represent anything. That's why I didn't say anything about what it represented. It doesn't represent the Holy Spirit. It represents, or it, in the story, it is the element that it was necessary for the ten bridesmaids to be prepared for the sudden coming of, of the, of the bridegroom. And so it doesn't speak about the Holy Spirit or, or anything else. And that's true in a, the, that causes a lot of misinterpretation it's called eisegesis, where you're reading other things into a passage. They may be true, but that doesn't mean it's part of the parable. And then the uh, fourth principle is that Jesus usually gives the specific general principle which the story is designed to illustrate at the end. And we have to pay attention. He tells us this is what it means. Okay, don't try to read other things into it. Don't try to make it walk on all fours. Uh, just focus on what Jesus says. So, as we address this passage, first of all, we need to review what's going on here. The interconnectedness of this entire discourse that begins in 24-4 going to the end of chapter 25 is important to understand. It's important for me to understand, I go back and I read the whole thing over and over again, and the more I do, the more connections I see and realize that one of the problems that has led many to misinterpret parts of this is that we either take the parables out, separate them from the context, or we don't spend enough time looking at the minutiae to get the connections. We have to look at the context. Second, what's the connection to the previous two parables? That's taking context a little more uh, a little uh, more granular. Third, who we have to identify who the slaves and servants are. This is a parable of a man who's traveling to a far country and he calls his servants to him. Well, who do the servants represent? Are the servants representatives of church-age believers are they representatives of believers, uh, Some, two of whom are obedient? One is just a disobedient believer. Is this a contrast between believers versus unbelievers? What's the nat- nature of the identification of the slaves and servants? Fourth, what's the distinction then between the first two and the third? I just alluded to that in terms of salvation versus Two saved, one not. 
or two who are faithful, obedient believers and one who's just a carnal believer. Fifth, addressing the question, how do we know the salvation status of the third servant? And we need to address that. And then finally, the implications for us. Going back to context quickly, the disciples have asked two questions. When, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your, of your coming? That is what is the, what Jesus is talking about. Now, I guess it's possible. Some say, well, Jesus is not only answering the question, he's giving additional information. I don't, I think that's possible, but I think after studying this, that isn't what's going on here. I keep coming back to the fact that this is a Jewish topic. This is a Jewish question related to a Jewish issue, uh, and he's talking to the disciples as representatives of the Jewish community. If uh, This morning I was back reading through Matthew 23. I'm convinced 24 has to come out of our understanding of 23. 23, Jesus just blasts absolutely blast the Pharisees and the scribes. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, he says. Seven times he is announcing judgment. The whole context of 23, 24, and 25 is going to come down to judgment. We have to understand that. Judgment for who? Judgment on Israel. Judgment on Israel is at the center of this. And he concludes, Includes while he's up at the temple area, he says in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are, are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. That's, that's the announcement of judgment on the temple. It's not just their home. It's not their nation. It is the temple. For I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then he leaves, he departs the temple, crosses over to the Mount of Olives, and uh, he looks back at the buildings and he says, Don't you see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. It's so Jewish. It's all about the temple. And so his disciples say, Ask the, these two questions. What, when will these things be? When's the temple going to be destroyed? When's this judgment coming? And second, what will be the sign of your coming? And the word there for, for coming, as I keep saying, it's so important. It's parousia. It doesn't just mean arrival. You know, somebody can, I'm going to come by the house and pick something up. You come and you go. It, parousia also has the meaning of, a, of arrival and presence. And they're asking that same question they ask over in Acts. When is this, when are you going to restore the kingdom? When are you going to bring the kingdom? That's what they're asking. So that is the overall context. So he's addressing Jews about this Jewish issue. Second, he's answering a question related to judgment, and that foreshadows the final judgment related to the eternal disposition of those servants in Israel who either follow the scribes and Pharisees as hypocrites who will be sent to the lake of fire, or they will serve the Lord in relation to the kingdom. So the parable of the righteous and wicked servant is talking about those wicked servants who are assigned a role, assigned a place with the... um, their their eternal inheritance with 
the hypocrites who are already identified in context as as the Pharisees. And then you there's a contrast between the righteous and wicked, between the wise and the foolish virgins and the faithful and unfaithful uh, servant. And what we see is those who serve the Lord are believers. So that's that contrast between believer and unbeliever. The context, third, the context is on Israel, not the church. We have to remember there are four distinct entities that must be distinguished. Jews and Gentiles are distinguished ethnically. A Jew is a physical descendant, not just of Abraham, but of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you don't have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're not Jewish. If you're a descendant of Abraham, maybe you're from the, uh, you're a descendant of Ishmael or the sons of Keturah. If you're a descendant of Isaac, maybe it's through the line of Esau. You're not Jewish. It's got to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as an ethnic Jew, you're under the Abrahamic covenant. And what are you supposed to do? Genesis 12, 2. You're to be a blessing to all people. But that doesn't guarantee eternal salvation. It just means temporal privileges and temporal blessing because you're, you're Jewish because of the covenant. Gentiles are non-Jews. Whether you're French, German, uh, Asian, Hispanic, Arab, you're Gentile. You're not Jewish. You have Jewish believers in the Old Testament. You have Gentile believers in the Old Testament, like, like Naaman the Syrian. Like the Assyrians in Nineveh that responded to Jonah. You have Gentile believers, you have Jewish believers, but only Jewish believers and the proselytes are under the Abrahamic covenant. Then in the church age, you have church age believers. But in the church age, ethnicity doesn't make an issue. It isn't an issue. If you are Jewish in the Old Testament, you have special privileges. Only a male ethnic Jew who's clean, clean, uh, ritually clean, can go into the temple and worship God. But in the church age, it's not restricted by either gender or by, um, by ethnicity. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond or slave. We're all one in the body of Christ because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So all church age believers are united in the body of Christ. Ethnicity is not an issue. But after the rapture, that's not a factor anymore. You have tribulation saints. Tribulation saints can be Gentile, they can be Jewish, but if they're Jewish, they're more like the Jews of the Old Testament because they have a special role to play in the tribulation in doing what? Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, they, they have the scriptures. They are to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. There's going to be 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel are saved very early in the tribulation, and their message is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The Messiah is coming back. You also have the two witnesses, and then you have numerous people who heard the gospel but didn't respond before the, uh, before the rapture, and they believe after the rapture they respond to the 144,000, and these tribulation saints are going to be responsible for that message, but primarily the Jewish believers in the 
in the tribulation. So, D, the fourth point in this review, the passage, therefore, is talking about Jesus' coming, his parousia, his arrival to establish his kingdom, his presence on the earth. All the way through, we don't have a rapture there, which is the fifth point, E, the rapture and the second coming are distinct events. Went through this several lessons back. They're separated by seven years. The, the rapture, Jesus comes in the clouds for his church to take them to heaven. In the second coming, he comes with the church to the earth to bring judgment and to establish his kingdom uh, upon the earth and to inaugurate that, which is a time of great great celebration. It's depicted in the parable of the, of the virgins as the wedding feast. It lasts for a thousand years, and so it's joyful. It's going to be pictured in the parable of the talents as entering into the joy of the master. That is entry into the, into the kingdom. And then the last point of review is to remind you that the parable of the fig tree was to teach Jewish tribulation saints to be watching, to be prepared, to be ready for the arrival of the Messiah. So that brings us to the next question, which is what's the connection to the previous two parables? This is important. Jesus strings these together for a reason. In the first of these three parables, the faithful and uh, wicked servant, we read in verse 45, who then is a faithful and wise servant? whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. So we saw in this parable that the master relates to the Lord, that it talks about uh, the servants, and we saw also, as we'll see again, that the servants here are not talking about church-age servants. Remember, Paul, whenever he would begin uh, introducing an epistle, would say, Paul, a servant of the Lord, or Paul and Timothy, servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, something like that. And so if you look at the Gospels through the lens of the epistles, you're going to think servant equals a believer. But that's not true. In the Old Testament, Israel is the servant of Yahweh. But not everybody is a believer in Israel. The prophets were the servants of God, but many of them were false prophets, and they weren't believers. So in the Old Testament, a servant of God may or may not be a believer, whereas in the New Testament, in the church age, a servant of the Lord is a believer. But we can't read church age doctrine back into the Olivet Discourse because the apostles, the disciples who are listening, haven't learned that information yet. That's an important important principle. So they're described as... Who's a faithful and wise servant? Two key words are pistos, meaning faithful or reliable or trustworthy, and the word for wise, which is phronimos, which means wise or sensible, and uh, these are then developed. The phronimos servant is depicted by the five wise virgins. So that tells us that You have to understand the first parable, to some degree, to understand the parable of the ten virgins. They're they're not disconnected. They're not isolated from each other. They're connected. The uh, parable of the ten virgins is designed to teach what it means to be a wise servant. They are prepared for the coming of Christ, and that means that they have trusted in Jesus to be saved. The ten foolish or unprepared haven't. 
As a result, they are going to go into judgment. Now, it shifts in the third parable to illustrating what it means to be a faithful servant. So faithful doesn't relate to being saved. It relates to what a saved person is supposed to do in the uh, in serving the Lord. So the focus there is on service, whereas the focus in uh, the other one is on on salvation. So the faithful servant, or, uh, faithful and wise servant, the wise one is illustrated by the virgins, and the faithful servant is by the parable of the talents. Four times the word faithful is used in the parable of the talents. So these three are definitely interconnected, must be understood together. So as I pointed out before, in Matthew 24, the master is Jesus, who's leaving on a journey to heaven. Very similar story, although we wouldn't necessarily use the master to mean Jesus everywhere. How do we know that? Well, if we went back to verse 43, know this, that if the master of the house had known, master there's not talking about the Lord. Okay, so you have to interpret each parable to some degree autonomously, but there's still an importance in understanding that connection. The slaves, as I pointed out, are Israel God's people, faithful and wise are the good leaders, the good shepherds in chapter, I mean, related to those who are fulfilling their responsibilities in the tribulation period. And the evil servants are the, are the, like the, leaders like the Pharisees and the evil servants. And their eternal destiny will be, will be the same. And just as a reminder, because there's a parallel between 2451 and the punishment of the third servant, Matthew 2451 says that the wicked servant will be cut in two and his portion will be appointed with the hypocrites, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Very clear that that describes an unbeliever. He's with the unbelieving Pharisees. And when you come to the end of the parable of the talents, verse 30 says, and the unprofitable servant is cast into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Both places, you the commonality is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The reason I point that out is because there's a number of people in the free grace camp that have followed some very bad teaching from some mid-trib people in the mid-19th century, Robert Govett and a few others, that this is sort of a purgatory, a millennial purgatory, and that carnal believers are going to be punished excluded from the kingdom, maybe even put into some sort of uh, torments punishment for a thousand years. I think that is just a horrible thing. That is the opposite of grace. It has nothing to do with grace, and they ought to be ashamed of themselves. So, Toussaint, I think, nails it. He says, invariably throughout Matthew, this phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, refers to the retribution of those who are judged before the millennial kingdom is established. It always describes unbelievers. That's what we'll see. So, who do the slaves and servants represent? Well, let's look at the text. Let's understand what is going on here and see how 
how this relates. Again, I want to remind you that as it begins with the word for, it is specifically connecting it back to the parable of the ten virgins. It is developing the same idea, thus if the parable of the ten virgins is a kingdom of heaven parable, and it is in verse 1, then this is also a kingdom of heaven parable, which is why the new King James will put kingdom of heaven, it's in italics in your new King James, but they're supplying that so that the English reader understands its connection to the previous parable, that that they're both talking about uh, the kingdom and they're both talking about, they're both talking about Israel. So it starts off with the word for, which always is an explanatory concept or emphasis, developing something. But it's not alone in the passage. It also has another word associated with it. The word in the uh, Greek is hosper, and it always indicates a tight connection in a comparison between two things. Okay, so so that uh, that the, the 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 these two words together in the Greek indicate that important and and tight uh, tight connection. So. What we see here is that in the uh, previous parable with the with the ten virgins, the emphasis is on the uh, being prepared by believing in Jesus. That's the only way to salvation, is to believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Over uh, not, over eighty five times in the Gospel of John, you have the verb believe, 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 believe. Never says believe and repent. But John concludes by saying, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you will have life in his name. He never says by believing and having works, never says by believing and repenting, although I think if you understand repenting is simply changing your mind from unbelief to belief, that's acceptable. But that's the emphasis, faith alone. That is all that is necessary in order to be uh, in order to be saved. And so that first parable is talking about preparation in terms of faith in Christ, and the second one emphasizes the service, the life of the believer. Uh, and so you see a contrast also between the believer and the unbeliever. Second thing that we see in this verse, it talks about uh, This is a man traveling to a far country, and he calls his servants together. This is the same word we have in the parable of the uh, uh, wicked and righteous servant, excuse me, righteous and wicked servant. It's the Greek word doulos, which can mean slave or it can mean servant. Of course, a servant depicts somebody who is voluntarily there working for some wage, whereas a slave is someone who has no volition. I think in our anti-slavery Western society, we like to use the word servant instead of slave, but that's how it would be understood at the time of Jesus. doesn't have uh, a volition to go do other things. He is under the absolute authority of his master. And so the slave comes, and because of the Jewish context, I think we have to understand this in terms of how it's used in the Old Testament. 
And Israel is referred to as God's servant in the Old Testament or the slave of God. That was supposed to be their position. That doesn't mean everybody in Israel was saved, but that they were to serve the Lord and they were given a mission, a mission to be a blessing to all people. They were given the responsibility of uh, receiving and recording and preserving the scriptures, all of these things. So in Isaiah... God talks about the prophets as his servants. So that relates to religious leaders in Isaiah 20, verse 3. He calls Isaiah his servant in Isaiah 22, 20. He calls David his servant in Isaiah 37, uh, 35. Calls, says about Israel, you are my servant, Jacob, whom I had chosen. In passages such as Isaiah 41, 8 and 9 and Isaiah 44, 2 and Isaiah 45, 4. And then the Messiah is the suffering servant, the great servant of God in Isaiah 53 and throughout the last part of, of Isaiah. So the servant imagery depicts Israel and therefore it includes both believer and unbeliever. It's not related to church age servants of God, which might indicate only only believers. Now, as servants of God, these servants in the parable are given tremendous privileges and responsibilities. The man who travels to a far country, this is a description of, uh, really it relates to the Lord and his ascension and departure. And so he calls his own servants. And I think that indicates Israel again as the special servant of God in the Old Testament. It's not a term that would describe them as, as believers because all of Israel corporately was his servant in the Old, Old Testament. And that really gets to the heart of the debate over understanding this passage. Is the unprofitable servant a disobedient believer or is the unprofitable servant an unbeliever? And what we'll see, it's evident from his punishment that he is not a a believer. And so uh, we learn that from the context. The context, the broad context, as I've talked about several times, takes us back to an analogy with Noah. Uh, as we first get the parable of the fig tree, and the point is to be ready, to be watchful, uh, it's illustrated. It's illustrated by the generation at the time of Noah when this worldwide flood is coming. And back in verse 37, chapter 24, Jesus says, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So there's going to be a comparison. And the term coming of the Son of Man there uses that same word that takes us back to the beginning. It is the presence of the Son of Man in his kingdom. For... As in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men were left in the field, one taken, the other left. Now, as I pointed out, there are those who think that the one taken is taken in the rapture. The vast majority, probably 75, 80 percent of dispensationalist futurists take it as taken away in judgment. But for my purposes, it doesn't matter. Because whether you're taking it as a rapture view or the second coming view, everybody believes that the one take, that one of them is a believer 
and the other one is not a believer. Okay? Everybody believes one's a believer. They may, they may switch the identification back and forth. They may be confused as to whether the one taken is the believer or the unbeliever or the one who remains is the believer or unbeliever. But everybody believes the contrast is between believer and unbeliever and not two different kinds of believers. Okay? That story, that analogy, that relationship to Noah is designed to to set up what comes next with the thief analogy in verses 43 to 44 and then the three parables. So if the contrast in the lead-in is believer versus unbeliever, then you're not going to switch gears and start talking about contrasting believers carnal believers and spiritual believers in the three parables. It's got to be consistent. Not only that, but when you come to the end of this section, which we'll get to next Sunday morning, with the sheep and the goat judgments, which is not a parable. It's not stated to be a parable. When we come to the conclusion of that and uh, our Lord gives gives the judgment on the goats, he says in verse 41, Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, you can't escape that. That's pretty unambiguous language, that that's eternal judgment. So the opening illustration is Noah and believers versus unbelievers. The closing story is, is the judgment of the sheep and the goats which separates believer and unbeliever. It makes no sense whatsoever that the three intervening parables are simply distinguishing carnal believers from spiritual believers. And yet there are a lot of people who are going with that today. So it completely misidentifies the context and abuses it to fit a theological system. Now, what bothers me is that the free grace theology neither stands nor falls by how they, by their interpretation of Matthew 24. It's free grace. It, it, it's, it has no relationship whatsoever, and yet they consistently want to read their view into this, and you all need to be aware of that. So the servants representing Israel, these servants in the parable are given tremendous responsibilities and privileges. This was true of Israel in the Old Testament. For example, in Romans 3.1, Paul says, To the Jews were committed the oracles of God. They were given the responsibility of receiving divine revelation, writing down, recording divine revelation, and preserving divine revelation, which they did. Whether believer or unbeliever, they were given that responsibility as a nation. Second, they're given the responsibility to be a, na- uh, 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 to be a blessing to all mankind in Genesis 12 too. That's a command that they are to bless all the nations. And ultimately that's fulfilled in the blessing of Jesus the Messiah. And then finally, it is to the Jews that were given the Messianic King. He would come through the line of David and the Savior of all mankind would come through the line of David and he would come to ultimately to establish his kingdom on the earth and bring salvation to all mankind. That's what Christmas is all about. Okay? So, slaves and servants represent Israel, 
and the treasures given to them represent the blessings and privileges and responsibilities that God was given to to Israel. So what's the distinction then between the first two slaves and the third? This indicates the distinction of those in the future tribulation period in how they are going to carry on those God-given responsibilities to Israel. If they're believers, they're going to uh, proclaim the word, they're going to proclaim the gospel, they're going to be a blessing to all mankind. If they're not, they won't. Okay? Here's the basic story. Matthew 25, 15 to 18. To one he gave talents, to another two. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To each according to his ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. Now, what's going on here? Well, first of all, this is a lot of money. This is a lot of money. Dwight Pentecost, who's usually pretty sharp, says in his words and works of Jesus Christ, he gives the first guy $5,000, the second one 2000 the last one 1000 Now, it's a lot more than that. Other commentaries point out that that five talents is equivalent to 20 years of wages for a common worker, for a common servant. 20 years of, of wages. So this is a rich, abundant responsibility that is given to these to, to these servants. If we put it into today's money, I wrote this out so I'd get it right. One pound of silver is 14 and a half troy ounces. A talent at that time could be gold, could be silver, but this passage in um, uh, Matthew uh, 25, 18 uses, which it's translated money, but it uses the Greek word argurion, which indicates silver. So uh, a talent of silver would range between 58 to 75 pounds. So we'll just round it off to 60 to get a, a low-end approximation. So if that's if we're dealing with 60 pounds, then you multiply 60 times 14 and a half troy ounces, and one talent would weigh 870 ounces. At roughly today's prices, I just rounded it up a little. To, it's been hovering above and below eight, uh, $18 an ounce. At $18 an ounce, that would be $15,660 per talent. For 10 talents, that would be $156,660. That's a sizable chunk of change. That is a ser- serious and significant responsibility. Could be as much as 200000 It's a lot of money. So the first one is given five talents. The second one's giving, given two, which is a little bit less than half of that, so that would be somewhere around uh, sixty-five dollars to $70,000. And the text says that each is given according to his ability. Now, this isn't talking about spiritual gifts. This isn't a talking about how, this isn't a financial message on stewardship. This is talking about the responsibility God gives to Jewish believers in the tribulation to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. So they're given different levels of responsibility and accountability. 
just as believers in every generation are, but this isn't talking about church-age believers or Old Testament believers. Each according to his ability. And what does the, fir- what does the first guy do? Immediately, uh, well, immediately it says the, the, uh, uh, the, the master goes on a journey. And then uh, we're told that uh, he who received the five talents went and traded with them, made another five talents. So immediately he's going out and he's making money. He's not wasting time. He's not procrastinating. He gets on board. Likewise, so does the second guy. He starts investing. They understand they're not just given the, these uh, resources to just sit on them. They're to do something with them. They are to invest them. They are to try to determine again, and they'll, they don't know how much time they have, so they're not going to waste any time, so that when the, their Lord comes back, they will have a return on their investment. But the third guy receives it, goes out, digs a hole in the ground, and he hides the Lord's money. So let's talk about this just a minute. What is he doing? Because this is important for understanding whether this guy's a believer or not. First of all, he digs a hole. Now, in the ancient world, this was a common way to secure money. You had a lot of money. The best place to secure it was go out and hide it from everybody, dig a hole in the ground and hide it. But this is an act of disobedience because it's implicit that they are to do something in terms of investment, they're to do something with this money to get a return on it because they will be, be asked for that. So he's clearly expected to use and invest what he was given for the master's benefit. But so he's it indicates here that he's in rebellion against the authority of his master. Second, his actions indicate that in light of his explanation that he gives uh, later on at the end when he says, uh, oh, well, I, I was afraid of you because uh, you have the reputation of being such a hard man um, that I just hid it in the ground. And here, now you can have it back. Um, his actions indicate that in light of that explanation, he really wasn't sure if the master would return. So there's a hint of a suggestion here that if he hides it, nobody will know that he has it. And if the master doesn't return, maybe he gets to keep it for himself. He's, he's not being uh, obedient at all. Third, he hides the resources. He not only does nothing with them, he hides them. This is comparable to Romans 1, 18 to 21, which we've been studying on Thursday night, as suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. It's hiding it. It's hiding the truth, holding it down. <clears throat> that would indicate an unbeliever, but there's more that would suggest that. <clears throat> Next, he lies about the master. When his Lord comes to him in verse verse 23, so 19, after a time the Lord comes back and he is... Um, comes to settle accounts with the servants. And the first one comes and brings the five talents and brings five more talents and said, Lord, you gave to me five talents. I've gained five more besides them. What does the Lord say? Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, the idea of good indicates someone who has done what they're supposed to do. Okay, he's done a good thing. Uh, good is a general word, just as in English. It can have more specific meanings, but in the context, it's close to faithful. He is, it's that idea. He's doing what he's supposed to do. He's faithful. He is reliable. He's dependable. 
And he says, you are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. This is the act of great generosity. He's, what's the third sermon going to say? You're a hard man, hard to please. Is this the example of a hard man? No, he's generous. You did well. I'm going to reward you abundantly, graciously, generously. He he praises him. He's not exhibiting this kind of a attitude at all that 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 is depicted by the uh, unfaithful servant. And then in verses uh, 22 and 23, the same thing happens with the uh, servant with the two talents, and he repeats almost the identical thing in verse 23. He's a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. He's not saying you've been faithful in two things. I'm going to make you a ruler over two things. You've been faithful in five things. I'm going to make you a ruler over five things. You've been faithful in five things. I'm going to make you a ruler over many, many things. Okay, so the reward is extremely bountiful and generous, far more than would have been, but would have been accepted. So, as we go on to talk about that third servant, this is what really indicates his uh, eternal status. He lies about the master. In verse 24, he says, "Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed." But that's not what is indicated by what the master does with the first two servants. So he lies about the master. This is comparable to the unbeliever who is lying about God. First, there's the suppression of truth, and then there's replacing truth with a lie. Then he says, and I was afraid. Who's the first person to become afraid in the Bible? Adam. Why? Because the Lord showed up, and he had been disobedient. At that point, he's an unbeliever. So that would argue in favor of the fact that he is an unbeliever. Third, or next, he is inconsistent with his own story. Lord, you're a harsh and wicked man. But listen to what the master says. The master says to him, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. The the statement there doesn't communicate well in English. It sounds like he's saying, yeah, you're right. I'm a hard and uh, wicked. I'm a hard master and I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered seed. He's saying, this is what you think is true. For those of you who've been working through Thursday night apologetics, he's saying this is your presupposition, it's a lie. And you can't even live consistently with your presupposition. You're an evolutionist who believes that everything is relative. You can't live consistently with that presupposition. He's saying if I'm really what you think I am, you'd have gone to put the money in the bank and it would have at least gotten 1% interest. But he, see, he's exposing the, 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 the reality of the lie that even the wicked servant didn't, didn't believe it. So, uh, he's saying, uh, you're just making, you're making the whole thing up. You're lying. He's exposing his unbelief. He doesn't believe ultimately that the, the master was going to come back. So the master is pointing out that his unbelief is uh, ultimately inconsistent and internally inconsistent 
and he's not living on the basis of his own uh, unbelief. So this in further indicates that this is not a believer. He's called a wicked and lazy servant. The lazy servant is a word indicating timid, troublesome, hesitating, and it's tied with the word paneros, which indicates evil, which often, and in the context of the wicked servant, stated earlier, indicates unbelief. So he says, you should have just put the money in the bank. So now what the Lord does, he takes it, what he gave him, gives it to those who are the believers who have something, states the principle, for to everyone who has more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Now what's interesting is, I put the note at the here, down here at the end of 30, I put it in the wrong place. This proverbial statement is used in Matthew 13:12, and it speaks of the unbelievers who rejected Jesus in Matthew 12, again indicating he is not a believer. And then finally, he's cast into outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, always used of the judgment of unbelievers. This is not just a being ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. This is a horrible punishment that's depicted there. So that brings us to the last question, which is what are the implications for us? Just as Israel was given tremendous privileges and responsibilities by the Lord and will be held accountable for them, we as believers are given incredible blessings. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. We've been given an unbelievable amount of spiritual resources with the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Spirit and the completed canon of Scripture. And we will be held accountable for how we use it. There is an implication there for us. There is accountability in God's plan. Just because we're saved doesn't mean there's not going to be accountability. And so we need to use what God has given us for his glory, and for the benefit of the body of Christ. We need to be good servants. But that's not what the message is teaching. That's only an implication of the message. What the message is teaching is that there will be a judgment of unsaved, I mean, a judgment of surviving Jewish tribulation, uh, surviving Jews at the end of the tribulation. Some will be believers, and they will enter the joy of the Lord. They will go into the kingdom. They will go into the wedding feast like the faithful, the five faithful virgins. They will be, um, they will be rewarded like the faithful servant. But there are those who are going to be like the evil servant, not a believer, like the foolish virgins who are not believers, and like the third servant who was afraid of his master, and they will be sent to eternal punishment. The only way to avoid eternal punishment in the lake of fire is to believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study through this passage, think through the difficulties of it, come to understand that it affirms the same thing as the previous two parables. And though it is not related to us directly, although it, it has implications for us as believers, because we too will go through an evaluation judgment at the judgment seat of Christ, not for our eternal destiny, 
but in relationship to our service for you and our role and responsibilities in the kingdom. And we pray that we will be mindful of that, taking every thought captive for Christ, redeeming the time so that we can maximize our service to you and you will be glorified throughout eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.